Welcome into the Original Gangsters podcast. I'm Scott Bernstein, along with my partner in crime, the Dr. Jimmy Bugelato. Hi, everyone. Hey, now. Today, we are going to discuss the New England Mafia, the patriarch of crime family, and we're going to start with one of the uh, world's most respected experts on the patriarch of crime family uh, out of New England, uh, uh, Providence, WPRI, Fox Television's own Tim White, who is uh, a mob historian that uh, we at the OG podcast, mob reporter that uh, we just, uh, we think the world of. Uh, Thanks for joining us, Tim. Guys, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So, uh, Tim, I mean, we're going to just dive right in. Uh, It's 2022. Obviously, the the mob uh, across the country isn't what it used to be. American La Cosa Nostra is somewhat of a shadow of of itself in its glory years of uh, the mid to late 20th century. But uh, what is the state of the patriarchal crime family right now uh, from your point of view? Well, I think the state of of La Cosa Nostra and the patriarchal crime family in New England is just as you had set the stage nationally. It's a shell of, of itself. What people need to understand about the New England crime family is that its power structure has gone back and forth between Boston, the north end of Boston, and Federal Hill in Providence. You know, the patriarch of the Patriarca crime family, Raymond L.S. Patriarca, ran the show from a coinomatic shop on Federal Hill for decades. And then after, you know, after a certain amount of time, that power structure went up uh, to Boston. We had mob bosses like uh, Francis Cadillac, Frank Salemi. And then we come back down here to Louis Minacchio, uh, Baby Shaq's Minacchio is in Providence. So anyway, the, the end game as to where we are now is the power structure centered up in the north end of, of Boston once again. But power structure of what is a really fair question because, you know, the government has legalized so much of what uh, La Cosa Nostra traditionally made their money off of, which was gambling. Now you can do that on your phone. Even back in the, you know, the 70s, we have the lottery now. That didn't exist uh, back then. So you still have your bookmakers. You still have your loan sharking. You have narcotics. Uh, you have certain shakedown operations and control of, of uh, the adult entertainment industry, particularly, uh, particularly in Rhode Island. There's uh, some of that going on. <clears throat> and there's been a little bit of a power shift, uh, Scott, which you know very well. You've done some good writing on it, uh, particularly in Rhode Island, with some players that have come back into the fold. We've had some capos that were in prison, and we're, we're, we're talking about Matty Gugliametti is a big name here. He's out of prison now, and he's, you know, there's some power structure or some pushing and pulling that's going on uh, on there. And we had a, a high-profile capo, uh, Scott, that uh, testified in the Salemi trial, and he denounced La Cosa Nostra, even though he had taken the oath of Omerta back in 1989. So, he was a high-profile capo that is no longer in the fold anymore. Bobby DeLuca, right? Bobby DeLuca um, is, you know, down uh, most likely in Florida uh, after saying that uh, after testifying uh, in that trial and again breaking the oath uh, uh, of Omerta. So I think, in short, uh, La Cosa Nostra is, as you say, a shell of what it once was, still exists. Um, but they rely more on associates. I don't know that they're opening the books all that much anymore. And so we just had the death of uh, one of the, you know, the veteran um, Providence Patriarcha guys, uh, Billy Blackjack Del Santo. Um, you reported on it, gave a great, great photo of him from, I believe, back in the 70s. With him dying out, 
how many made guys do you think exist in Rhode Island right now? Are we talking five guys? Are we talking 10 guys? Are we talking two guys? It's a good question. I'm doing the math in my head, right? And you say in Rhode Island, because that's an important distinction. Um, there is probably fewer than 10 made guys in Rhode Island right now, which is really astonishing when you think about even, uh, you know, into the 1990s, uh, how much higher that number was. And even Del Santo, Blackjack Del Santo, who was really one of the old school mafia soldiers in New England, he'd been out of the business for years, right. uh, as you know, Scott. So he, you know, w- was he a made member? Yeah, he got his button, but he, he was definitely not in the mix any longer. And as you as you pointed out, uh, for, for some maybe the more novice um, listeners, the patriarchal crime family has been traditionally split between Providence, Rhode Island and Boston, Massachusetts. Um, the family got its, you know, uh, most notoriety under the leadership of Raymond Patriarca. That's why it's called the Patriarca crime family. He was based um, in Providence. He had his own Boston uh, faction of loyalists, Jerry Angulo, Larry Zanino. Angulo's, yeah. Um, then, you know, when he died suddenly in 1984, leadership passed to his son. Uh, right. I call him Raymond Jr., but I know he's not officially a junior. Um. Uh, what's his middle what's his middle initial the younger raymond Bain. well it's not ls right. <laughs> it is not ls so, so officially not a junior but he's known as raymond junior right raymond. uh and uh, that coincided with cadillac frank salemi who you referenced earlier um in in uh, in our talk uh, coming out of prison and although cadillac frank was a boston guy he right. aligned with the providence guys when he came out of prison he did. And yeah. it caused, uh, you know, a, a pretty major rift. Um, Raymond yeah. Jr. wasn't a very strong leader. Um, and the guys in Boston uh, were either trying to take advantage of it or resenting it or both. Um, yeah. And, and uh, you know, what was, you, you know, historically when people look back on that now, is that just kind of like kind of a surreal memory that for, you know, I know the shooting war lasted a short period of time, but there was still, you know, residual collateral damage violence in, in the Salemi uh, uh, reign throughout the 90s. I know a lot of the shooting took place in 89. But uh, how do people look back? Yeah, how do people look back on that now, you know, 30, 30 plus years later? Yeah, that was a monumental time in the New England crime family. When Raymond Jr. Patriarca took over for his old man after, as you said, his old man passed away suddenly in 1984, the Boston faction and uh, the Connecticut crew and, and part of the Springfield crew, though we should know that Springfield is largely controlled by New York. Right, Genevieve. Uh, so that's sort of the slight, the Genevieve, which has connections to uh, Raymond Patriarca aligned of the five families in New York, Raymond Patriarca aligned himself with the Genovese crime family. And that's why, you know, there's so much respect for Patriarca. And I know I'm going on a tangent out of New York. We we love tangents on this show. All right, good, good. Then I'm your guy because I'm a tangent guy Um, that, that they uh, Raymond Patriarca was able to control the vast majority of New England and Genovese didn't make a play for it. And again, with the exception of parts of Connecticut and Springfield. Okay. So when junior takes over, he's got the helm for a few years. You had a a high profile um, uh, police officer at the time and an investigator said he could, he couldn't lead a Brownie troop or something really pejorative 
Um, and there was a, not a lot of confidence. And more importantly, there was blood in the water. And Raymond Jr. Patriarca really felt his days were numbered. You had Billy Grasso got capped uh, down in Connecticut, one of, one of his guys. You said, As you said, Scott, there was a shooting war that was going on. And so what did Raymond Jr. do? Well, he tried to, to pull the different factions together, and he held an iconic now uh, mob induction ceremony in Medford, Massachusetts. That's a suburb of Boston, just north of Boston, and in just a nondescript blue-collar neighborhood there swearing in a bunch of uh, uh, new members into the family, including some from the, the that Boston faction that was feeling rather disgruntled. Most of them were. I think there were five guys, and four of the five were from the Boston faction, and Bobby DeLuca was the only right, one. Right, and who, who's the, who was the Rhode Island guy? Right, Bobby DeLuca. Bobby DeLuca, who we just talked about. Good job. And so, you know, the, but the worst thing possible that could have happened and that is the FBI had wired up the house and recorded the, for the first time, a mob induction ceremony, which was not only devastating for New England, but organized crime families across the country. Because believe it or not, the defense for the mob everywhere was, it, it doesn't exist. You know, these, this is all pure fiction. Uh, there is no organized La Cosa Nostra. Well, now they had it on tape. The, the pricking of the trigger finger, the burning of the saint, whatever the patron saint for that crime family was, the taking the oath of Amerta and Sicilian, and so they had it all. And that was really, of course, the downfall of Junior. He eventually went off to federal prison. Those tapes were a big part of it. And so the instability continued um, uh, beyond that into the Salemi years, who, again, was cozier with Rhode Island when he got out of prison, as you pointed out, than he was truly to Boston, even though he was, tech, you know, he was a Massachusetts guy, grew up in an area called Sharon, Massachusetts, which is right between Providence and Boston, no coincidence. Um, and so that sort of instability went on for a long time to the point that Salemi himself got shot as he was leaving a pancake house uh, up in, in the Boston area. Um, and so really that went on for a long time. I would argue things really stabilized when Louis Menacchio, again, when the power structure came back to Providence, that's when things started to settle down. So things were, were like the Wild West there from, let's say, 89 to 94, 95. Even though on the surface with Salemi, it, it seemed in some ways to stabilize. But Salemi, and tell me if I'm, I'm wrong and get, give me your take on this. Salemi had a, you know... He, he was someone that was, was revenge thirsty and, and was someone that didn't forget the fact that there were members of that North End and East Boston uh, faction that tried to kill him in, in his ascent. And he took aim at a lot of those guys while he was boss. And there were about, I mean, I know, I know there were at least a half a dozen to a dozen murders uh, between 90 and like 96 that Salemi probably played a role in, but didn't um, cop to them in his cooperation deal. Salemi eventually cooperated in, in, in the late 90s, 99. Oh, he, he, yeah, he left a lot out. And why yeah. did he cooperate? He cooperated because Whitey Bulger, right. the, now a household name in this country, he was outed along with Stephen Flemmy as a top echelon informant, and and Salemi was pissed. Right? right. I mean, he felt betrayed. Look, so let 
he felt betrayed because even though Whitey Bulger is not part of La Cosa Nostra and, and, and nor was Stephen Fleming, Stephen Fleming was part of the Winter Hill group or the Whitey Bulger group. Um, but Fleming and Salemi were, were pretty close and they had a working relationship. But all the while, we know now, Bulger and Fleming were dining out members of La Cosa Nostra to the FBI it, so they could kill the competition, right. if you will. So you're right. He had selective memory. When he decided to, uh, when he when he cooperated it in late, and you're supposed to lay it all on the table, what's called a proper session with the FBI, and he didn't lay everything on the table, including right. um, the case that the case that ultimately is going to put put him in prison for the rest of his life. He's going to die in prison because he uh, took part in the murder, as, as did his late son and another man of a of a Boston nightclub owner named Stephen DeSaro, who he thought was he was, you know, also paranoid and as you say, vindictive was cooperating right. with the federal government. And we, and we don't know if he actually was, there's speculation, but he, whether he was or he was about to, the belief was that uh, he was about to turn on, on the Salemi family. I believe they also thought that right. he was stealing from the nightclub that uh, they had owned together. Um, Stevie DeSaro had his own legal problems at the time of his uh, murder. He was facing some uh, uh, bank fraud investigation um, yep. and had been what we know at least had been approached by the FBI and uh, Rhode Island um, uh, uh, state police. Um, we, we never really got clarification on if he actually started informing. Well, and as you and as you point out, it doesn't matter, Scott, right? right. Because even though the charge, the the, the federal charge against Stephen, uh, excuse me, against uh, Salemi was murder of a witness, you can't take that and say, well, that means Desaro was a witness. No, right. the element of that crime is, is only that the person the accused of is the intent. Right. Is they they thought that the individual was, uh, you know, p potentially a confidential informant to the governor, uh, government. Doesn't mean that he was. Let me ask you about the Cadillac Frank's, you know, code of ethics here, because if he's, he's upset at Flemmy and Bolger, understandably so, but, like, if you were to ask the old school patriarch, the original patriarch boss, or Carlo Gambino, and he said, one of your top associates just ratted on you, Carlo Gambino's not going to say, okay, well, now I'm going to rat on him. Right. <laughs> I'm rat on yeah. him. But that was the state <laughs> of the mafia in 1999. <laughs> right. right. In other it, words, it's not an excuse in the old, in the old school. No, but if that would have, no, I, but I, to your point, though, is I yeah. think if that would have happened 10 years before that or 15 yeah. years before that, Cadillac Frank might not have. Flipped, right. But, but, right. But, but Phil Leonetti had flipped. Sammy the Bull had flipped. Uh, at that point, yeah. by 99, the, the code didn't really mean much. Right. And and can I call you Jimmy? Yeah, yeah a lot on the show. I'm yeah. not number two. Okay. <laughs> so Jimmy, you bring up yeah. you bring up a good point because and this this is how he justified it. Um, uh, so let me justify it as I'm not a rat because all I did was go after a guy who was the ultimate rat and and cut him out by the kneecaps. But I think you're right that if if you really look at the old school, a rat is a rat is a rat, and um, and that's you know I think how a lot of People took that, but look, you know, Salemi eventually got out of prison. Again, he's back in because of the DeSaro case, but he got out of prison. Uh, he was um, down, uh, you know, down south. In Atlanta. Southwest. It was in Atlanta. In Atlanta. Thank you. I was trying to try, because I remember filing a story, uh, Scott, and I think you did too, 
um, that he joined a New England Patriots yeah. fan club so he'd go down to in this, Atlanta. Right, he'd go to a bar every <laughs> Sunday. To a son every bar. Sunday and watch the Patriots with all And these. I interviewed the president of this fan club. He's like, the guy was the nicest guy, you know. Um, so anyway, and then he decided, screw it. I'm not hiding out anymore. And he reemerged in Boston again, and he never got whacked, right? Uh, he, he, even though, you know, he testified or cooperated with the government in the case against Whitey Bulger and Stephen Flemmy, that ultimately put them away. Uh, it, even, even though I think you're right, Jimmy, the old school... Uh, folks would think that, yeah, he definitely was a rat. Omerta is Omerta. Um, he was able to he he was able to walk the streets again until he was picked up. And you know, Bulger too in Santa Monica. They say Bulger would go watch Celtics and Patriots games at uh, I don't know if it was like a formal club. But but I, he was known. I, I, for I'm going to digress for one <laughs> second, and then I'm going to throw in some some added context. But I knew somebody in Santa. Uh, I know someone from Boston that was living in Santa Monica, and. Uh, was with one of his buddies from Boston, and they were in line at a deli in Santa Monica, like in 2008 or nine. And they were like, I, th- I think that's Whitey Bulger. And then the guy was like, what are you crazy? Yeah, right. We're in Santa Monica. That ain't yeah. Whitey Bulger. Right, yeah, no the guy, way. The guy called me like the day that he got arrested. He's like, me and my buddy just left $25 million on the table because we didn't call in the tip that Whitey Bulger was in Santa Monica. Yeah, you, 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 would, you would think there's no way. Yeah. yeah. But uh, just for added context, I want to um, – let people know that so when Salemi becomes boss of the uh, of the patriarchal crime family after uh, the shooting war and 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 the the making in ceremony that was the ritual that was recorded uh, a bunch of those guys go to prison Salemi's kind of the last man standing but he still needs muscle behind him and he's not going to get it from the guys in Boston uh, or I should say he's not going to get it from the Italian guys in Boston so he makes an alliance with Southie and the Winter Hill Gang so between 90 and Mm -hmm. 95 they were kind of operating in concert and the guys that Salemi had around him there's actually wiretaps of him discussing the type of uh, quote-unquote kids that he had around him they were all Irish guys his two bodyguards right. at that time um, were Richie Devlin and Richie Gillis, who were known as these two cowboy, uh, Richie the Hatchet Devlin and uh, Richie Nine Lives Gillis. Just those nicknames tell you what kind of individuals they were. Um, and uh, I think he's on tape with some of the Gambinos being like, yeah, I got a, a good group of uh, young, tough Irish kids watching my back. Like, <laughs> So you get the help where you can, you, where you right. can get it. Right. So I, I want to take this real quickly and then, and then we'll, we'll, we'll let you go. We, we appreciate the time you've given us, but uh, no, let's course. quickly talk about a, a, a murder conspiracy that turned into a gangland hit uh, that is still being looked at by a federal grand jury and uh Charges might come uh, in the near future. We're not sure. Seems like uh, this has been a pending issue for a couple years now. But Frank Salemi names uh, Baby Shaq's Minocchio, Minocchio, uh, who eventually becomes the godfather. But back in the early 90s, he was uh, Frank Salemi's underboss, um, was, was, mm-hmm. was representing uh, Providence while, while Frank was uh, in Boston. And then Bobby DeLuca was kind of the go-between. And it's, it came out recently, um, recently as in the last four or five years, that Raymond Jr. was alleged from prison 
to have possibly contracted Kevin Hanrahan, uh, who was a another kind of cowboy mob figure in in uh, in, in Providence. It was an Irish guy that worked for the Italians. Was known as a as a hitman and an enforcer. Um, and according to some of these court documents, Raymond Jr. had reached out to Hanrahan in the early '90s to to whack out Salemi and 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 Louis Minocchio. Um, right. And then in September of '92, uh, Kevin Hanrahan is killed uh, in Federal Hill, uh, leaving a, uh, a a dinner at the Art Steakhouse. Um, and I know that that murder is back under the microscope because Bobby DeLuca, um, I know all these names get confusing to people that don't know, uh, <laughs> they right, don't know he, the mafia he, as well as we involved. do. Right. So when Bobby DeLuca, right. When Bobby DeLuca decides to cooperate against Salemi back in 16, he also has to give information on what he knows about Hanrahan. So I guess my question to you is where do you hear or believe that that investigation stands. I know there's been a grand jury in, in, you know, meeting for at least the last three or four years. Um, but there haven't been any charges. What, what, what do you hear about, uh, that hit? I think what is, and we should point out, this has been primarily a state investigation, which to your listeners might, there might not be too much of a distinction, but it's been the Rhode Island attorney general's office that and state police here that has been investigating that, um, hit for decades now, as you pointed out, it was 1992. Um, I think the trouble for the government, Scott, is their star witness has been convicted of lying to federal agents, perjury, and yep. that is Bobby DeLuca. Yep. So, um, you know, they need more than Bobby DeLuca to uh, be able to indict anyone who might still be alive. Um, uh, that was involved in that hit. Now, Louis Menacchio, even though he's not the boss anymore, he was convicted in 2011 of uh, essentially taking protection payments from strip joints uh, in Rhode Island. He went away to prison five or six years. He's out, but he's no longer the boss, ostensibly out of the business, whether he's you know, still getting he's like paid nine, tribute money. I believe he's 91 94. or 94. 94 he's, years old. Yeah, he's yeah. pretty uh, – yeah. it's the definition of old school. <laughs> Yeah, he, he really is. So, you know, and whether or not the attorney general's office has enough to go after 94-year-old Louis Minocchio for and I also allegedly believe- ordering the hit, you know, it, it's got to be more than the word of Bobby DeLuca, and I'm not sure that they have. And I believe one of the shooters that's being uh, – uh, one of the alleged shooters is dead. Uh, Rocco Argenti, right. Rocco Argenti is alleged Rocco to be one, one of the shooters who was uh, Baby Shaq's uh, consigliere for a short period of time and then died of, uh, died the of stomach, other, stomach cancer. The other suspect is a guy named Eddie Lato, who's a, a old school capo, just got out of prison a few years ago. Um, you know, rumored to be uh, what is considered to be the underboss currently in the Patriarca crime family in New England. Uh, for whatever, you know, whatever that's worth, um, you know, so obviously a, a player uh, type, of, type of thing. But he, my sources tell me he wasn't the trigger man, that Argenti was the trigger man, and that's how police have been looking at it all along. But Eddie was right next to Hanrahan. He was right there. Right. And then they have surveillance footage of Bobby DeLuca, 
I believe Rocco Argenti and Eddie Lado, Eddie Lado meeting like a half hour later at another restaurant, like within minutes or, you know, pretty shortly thereafter. Yeah, there's witnesses, and I don't, the surveillance video might be true. That's interesting. Um, I don't recall that, but it's a little, a lot of water under the bridge there. Yeah. But I do know it was at another restaurant that um, I believe DeLuca, Argenti, maybe Leto went in, and it was kind of a mobbed up place, and there were witnesses in there okay. that, you know, recall this sort of interaction shortly after after the homicide. What's really interesting is I, I real quick on the Hanrahan uh, thing I've done periodic reporting on that. I tracked down w- one of the people that put him into the ambulance and they were, you know, doing chest compressions, but he, he had taken two shots to the head. He, he was clearly dead. Um, if, you know, federal Hill for the people who've never been there, first of all, some of the best food you'll have right. on the planet, um, a, a hop in place, uh, really lively and energetic. There were absolutely, absolutely witnesses to that murder. There's no question about it. No one said a damn thing. And even, you know, even in the early 90s, that really spoke to the power and stranglehold that the Patriarcha crime family had, particularly on that neighborhood. And that sort of sense of you just you don't talk because if you talk, there's going to be, you know, it's a death sentence, essentially. And that has held. We are talking 30, almost 30 years now. After that murder, 2022, my goodness, that has held all those years, which is really remarkable. Yeah, I'd like to ask a question about the neighborhoods. You bring that up because if we're talking about the current state of the patriarchal crime family, one of the reasons why the mafia, I think, is on the decline in places like Detroit or maybe even Chicago is you don't have the Italian neighborhoods anymore. Italian-Americans are dispersed in, in these middle class, comfortable neighborhoods. Whereas in New York and Philadelphia, you still have some ethnic Italian neighborhoods where, where you've got a recruiting pool. Chicago where, as well. Chicago as you still, well. Okay, so Chicago. So where you can still recruit guys. And maybe it's not the same caliber it was, but whatever. There's still guys. There's still Italian-American guys who want to be wise guys. Whereas I think in Detroit and places like that, you, you don't see that as much as you used to. So what, what's going on with Boston? I mean, I've been to Boston before, but for like professional things, I've never really... Well, Boston and Providence. Cause it's... Yeah, so Boston and Providence. What, what would you say is like the, the demographics there? Is it similar to New York or is this like where they're just really, you don't really have a recruiting pool anymore? Or a, or a concentrated. A concentrated, right, where, where you have young Italian guys that want to be wise guys. Excellent point. Well, let, let's just look at, uh, at gangs as a whole. What, what, how do they thrive and survive and how are they born? They're born primarily out of uh, lower class, socio, lower socioeconomic neighborhoods where you have kids without fathers and the crime family steps in. This was true for any gang. You could some Cambodian gangs, Latin Kings, um, you name it, the Irish, you know, Irish mob. This is sort of, they fill that vacuum. Right. Um, And so that's why these concentrated neighborhoods were truly breeding grounds for people. I mean, you're growing up and you look up at the wise guy uncle that you have, and you really, you wanted to emulate that. And that's all you, you wanted to be as, as you got older. But as these neighborhoods have changed over time, so have the crime family. So in Providence, you, it's primarily, primarily Latino now in Providence, uh, Federal Hill included. Um, so it's not the Italian enclave. But before it was Italian, it was an Irish neighborhood in Federal Hill. So 
as the immigration has changed over the years, it has affected the crime family. So we have, um, you know, gangs that are probably uh, primarily made up of Latino members uh, in, in Providence. You know, I, I kind of joke, Raymond L.S. Patriaca sort of set the standard. He moved to a suburb called Lincoln <laughs> out of Providence, you know, once he had enough money as the boss, I suppose. And he moved out of Federal Hill, even though he operated uh, his coinomatic on, on Federal Hill there. And a lot of that is true for Boston, though, a little bit different. I mean, you have you have the Latino population in certain neighborhoods up there. Um, but a lot of it, too, is sort of gentrified. And, you know, the south end of Boston and Southie, I couldn't afford an apartment in Southie. Yeah, you Southie kidding? Is, I don't know. You in the last 20 years, what's happened to Southie? When I was in Boston uh, right un- before the pandemic. I call it Crystal City. Oh, my yeah, God. I, I, look. Covering the Woody Bulger wouldn't, trials, wouldn't look, recognize it. <laughs> he would have no idea. He thinks he's on Mars <laughs> yeah. because the, the uh, federal court where I covered the Salemi trial, and by the way, where I also covered the Bulger trial, um, that is where Bulger used to bury his bodies. And federal court is right in South Boston, right at this beautiful area right along the harbor. You turn around and in an area that just used to be industrial and, and really kind of crappy is now uh, – $2.2 million one-bedroom apartments uh, there in these these high-rise buildings and, you know, everybody walking around with their expensive dogs and yoga pants. And it, <laughs> I mean, it's just a totally different neighborhood than it, than it was even, I would argue, uh, 20 years ago. So, Jimmy, you bring up a good point again, and it has totally affected the ability to recruit. But I also think, you know, there's a famous, famous, I don't know, that's strong, but there's a wiretap, uh, bring up another Italian name in a a case against uh, D'Annunzio up in Boston. Who, by the way, uh, the D'Annunzio brothers, Carmen and Anthony, are alleged, at least by the uh, government sources that I've talked to, um, to be the, or at least Carmen D'Annunzio, who they call the big cheese, is alleged to be the boss now of, of the patriarchal crime family. And he uh, my sources say the same. Yeah. yeah, and he's a guy that came up in the North End uh, of Boston, but then got into a some type of dispute him and his brother with Jerry Andrulo, and was kind of chased out of the North End, uh, relocated to California in Las Vegas, uh, got caught up in a case where they were actually collecting debt on behalf of the Chicago Mafia, um, based on uh, Tony the Ant Spilatro, who had. Uh, Joe Pesci in the movie Casino. Yeah. When he died, there was some outstanding debt to that that his crew was owed, and somehow the Denunzios got tasked with going out and collecting it. They got caught, went to prison for five, six years, come back to uh, New England, uh, and Baby Shaq's Minocchio. I, I don't know if Baby Shaq knew the Denunzios before any of that, but very quickly the Denunzios fall under uh, Baby Shaq's and become kind of Proteges. Well, Carmen, Carmen was the underboss right. to Louis Minocchio right. at, right. at that time. And we should just, for your listeners, point out, uh, he's called Big Cheese for two reasons. Right. Um, I can give you, you can guess the first He's one. like 400 uh, pounds. He's he was, 400 pounds. He's a big, big guy. <laughs> gigantic man. And the second is he ran a cheese shop yes. in the north end of Boston. And, and I've been told that the cheese they sold was just spectacular. I mean, it was a legit great uh, cheese shop, though. I've never... Uh, taking part in it myself, but he was, there was a wiretap that he was caught on. It was part of 
you know, a, 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 constru- a classic mob construction project, trying to amp up the price on something and get a cut of it. And one guy, an, an Italian guy who probably had done enough to become a made member of the mob, was caught on a wire uh, in this case saying, no, I'm, I'm, not, I'm never going to you know, swear an oath. I'm never going to join the mob. It's not worth the headache. Right. And it's just, you know, as the federal government uh, particularly has just rained down like hellfire on uh, the the mob families really in the 90s. And well, when Rico, the Rico statute was put on the books and then particularly the 80s and the 90s and the early 2000s until their focus shifted to terrorism. It just wasn't worth the headache. So you have kind of two things going on, Jimmy, I would say the one that you rightfully point out the changing demographics of these neighborhoods that aren't as concentrated. And uh, so there isn't that pool of people and just the uh, focus that the government had put on prosecuting these cases made it really not as tantalizing. Yeah. You hear about guys now who like turn down promotions, guys who are made, but still turn down promotions wait, wait, because wait, they don't, wait, on, they don't wait, want the target. Wait, wait, on let's, their just, back. let's just talk about one of the famous scenes from the Sopranos. From, like, the early episodes of The Sopranos. I think even the first season of The Sopranos, which was 99-2000, when Jackie April dies and they're having a conversation about who's going to be the boss and nobody wants it. Nobody wants Tony it, Tony didn't yeah. want it. He's like, uh, <laughs> Raymond, you take it. Right. Uh, yeah. They're right. trying to pass right. it off. Right. So-and-so, yeah. you take it. It should be you. And, 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 yeah. and that was, like I'm saying, that was 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, Too much heat. Let, let me ask you this. And, uh, this is a little bit more granular and asking you to put on your armchair uh, mob psychiatrist hat. <laughs> so both Cadillac Frank and Bobby DeLuca um, become FBI informants, join the witness protection program, and both are eventually caught lying in their debriefing sessions, um, which caused them to then get charged again um, they didn't, and we talked about it a little bit earlier about Cadillac Frank not coming forth with everything that, that he did, uh, and them getting caught up in, in the DeSaro case together. What was, or let me give you my take on it, and then I want to get your, your opinion. I look at it as both of those guys realizing that if they gave up everything that they knew, that people that they liked <laughs> would be in some, and in some cases, people that they were related to uh, would be going down with the ship. Uh, when we're talking about Cadillac Frank, even though his son passed away in 95, his brother is still alive. And uh, mm-hmm. his brother, Jack uh, was involved in, in, or allegedly involved in some of these murders, including the DeSaro hit, if you believe some people's, uh, recollections, but Jack Salemi uh, never got uh, uh, indicted on it. Um, and with DeLuca, I, I believe in some ways, uh, and same with Salemi, they were trying to protect Eddie yeah. and Maddie and Baby Shacks. And, and Joe, uh, you're missing a big name uh, as to who Bobby was trying to, to protect. Joe Ruggiero? Joe, his brother, Joe DeLuca. Oh, Joey DeLuca. Yeah, 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 right. Bobby's brother. Sorry, yeah, yeah, Bobby's brother. Right. Exactly. I think you're spot on, Scott. I, I think that's it. 
uh, in a nutshell. And first of all, I do, I do one point of clarification. I don't know that Bobby ever actually got put formally into the witness protection program. Okay, he yeah. was relocated. Right. Um, so that just a slight distinction on that, but yeah, look, even though, uh, for Cadillac, Frank, his son had already passed, there are people he was trying to protect, including his son post-mortem, I suppose, and trying to shield, uh, him there. And look, he'd gotten away with so much for so long. Why wouldn't he think he could continue to do that as it were for Bobby? Um, his brother, Joe, um, helped bury the right, sorrow. Right. Uh, they, there's an old factory in a gritty part of Providence known as Branch Ave, and uh, they had a connection with the guy that owned the factory. Too long of a story to get into here on your podcast. Um, and they... I got jammed uh, up was, in a drug uh, case and had to get out of jail. In a marijuana case yeah. in, in 2016, and his get-out-of-jail-free card was, hey... I know where Stevie DeSaro is buried yeah. right in my backyard. Yeah. And uh, I know who did it, the DeLuca brothers. Now, Bobby wasn't there. Joe was there. But Bobby helped coordinate with Cadillac. Well, and I should say Bobby helped get the body right. um, from Cadillac, Frank Salemi. But it was Joe and a, another man who helped bury the body in, in behind um, the factory. And that, that's going to put Joe DeLuca in the soup. And so I think when he had his proper session, when Bobby DeLuca had his proper session, you know, he withheld it in, for both the same reasons as Salemi, to protect a family member, and what the hell. I've gotten away with so much for so long, I can probably get away with this one. And I think we've painted this picture here, Scott, but Salemi and DeLuca, as you had talked on early on in this conversation, Salemi was really... Uh, he had a, a better relationship in Rhode Island, and a lot of that was because of, of DeLuca. Right. DeLuca and Salemi were tight. And so I think there was still uh, a hint of loyalty there at that, even at that time, you know, in 2000, uh, well, whenever he proffered in 2011, maybe. Salemi proffered in nine. And then. And I think DeLuca was 2011. Yeah, I think he started think. wiring up in nine, but ended up yeah. in 11. You're right. 11 is when the indictments came down. Yeah. I was just going to say something else. You were talking about how things change. Something you didn't even bring up yet, you guys, is that Cadillac Frank, I know I'm backtracking here, but he's not even full-blooded Italian. Right. And not only do they make him, he becomes the boss. Right. And he's half Irish. Raymond Sr. did not, according to a lot of people, Raymond Sr. didn't want to make him because he was Irish, despite That's the fact how that he had, <laughs> he, had, he had done a lot of work for Raymond sure. Sr. before he went to prison uh, sure. for the car bombing. But they, they had to lighten things up. I think this to Tim's point about changing demographics and things. When the, As the recruiting pool gets smaller, if you've got a guy who's a good gangster, even if his mom's Irish, yeah. well, Rage, <laughs> Rage, you to make him into the well, family. Ray, Raymond Jr. needed Salemi, just right. like he That's needed right. Billy Grasso. Yeah. Because Raymond Jr. was yeah. weak. And yes. meek. Yeah, he needed and, muscle. And Cadillac Frank and Billy Grasso were as far from meek and weak as right. As but as I'm saying can, back in the be. 30, 40 years earlier, they could have found a tough, full-blooded Italian guy. Yeah. They wouldn't have. They wouldn't have needed to but make. But Salemi was Frank. also incredibly ambitious and yeah. an incredibly savvy gangland politician. I mean, I've heard stories that you know the second that he hit, you know, hit the streets in in uh, spring of '87 that he had his eyes on the prize and, you know, w- w- was 
circling the horses to to pave his way into the boss's chair, you know, four years before he actually reached it. I I don't know why I'm so interested in the anthropology anthropology of this right now, but did, do we know what he, did he identify more with his Irish side or his Italian side? I mean, what kind of neighborhood did he, did he grow up in? He grew up in, I believe he grew up in Somerville. So that would be Boston. I, that was, yeah. those are, I mean, those are uh, Irish American, right? Uh, both. Okay. Yeah. Somerville. Yes. I would say Somerville, um, you know, that is a little bit north of, uh, just slightly north of Boston's on the red line, as we'd like to say, when I worked in the Boston area, you had to areas like Davis square, uh, up in that area. And there was, you know, a lot of Irish, uh, neighborhoods in there, but however he identified in his childhood years, Jimmy, I would say he certainly, uh, harnessed his Italian blood, uh, <laughs> quote unquote, professionally. Sure, yeah. right? Yeah, right, uh, right. Just, as, Cause he, I, I think Scott didn't use the word ambitious and that is, that is a hundred percent true. And boy, he knew how to make money. Yeah. Uh, as soon as he got out of prison, he was clearly an earner, uh, and he he moved up uh, very quickly. And he fell onto the radar screen of you know he's been on the law enforcement radar screen for quite a while. But he was as soon as he stepped out of prison and he started making waves, they they had him uh, you know under watch uh, from the get go. He was a very likable guy. I I I got to meet I, meet and interact with him. Um, <laughs> this, I'll, again, I'll digress for a quick second, but you know, uh, we were in conversations in, in 2015, me and Frank Salemi about doing a memoir. Um, and right. I, and I had, uh, I was, I was really excited about it. And, and Frank Salemi was kind of all the, uh, you know, his reputation preceded him and it, he lived up to his reputation as someone that was very magnetic and, and someone that, I could see how he was a lightning rod, how some people would rally around him and 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 uh, become his loyalists and, and get behind him because he was a natural leader and how other people would be turned off by it and uh, and, and want to kill him for it. <laughs> um, I, You know, can I, if I yeah. can just add to what you're saying, because yeah. uh, you know, the one thing I met and talked to, I, I met and talked to Salemi, not to the extent that you have, I've met and talked to uh, Louis Minocchio. Uh, right, you've you know, met way more New England guys, guys than I have. I just happen to have have conversations with with Cadillac Frank. Uh, but um, yeah, Tim is the without question the expert when it comes to that stuff. No, I, I don't know about that. But when you're doing look, when I'm doing stories on organized crime figures, I, you know, I think it's only fair to let them know I'm doing a story. And you know, so let's say I'm reporting on Bobby DeLuca. There used to be a bar called Sidebar that he would be. You know, he was supposed to be working at, but he was just running books down there. And um, I'd go down there, you know, and say, hey, Bobby, I'm doing a story on you. I know you're not going to want to comment, but, you know, and he'd go, ah, you watch too many goddamn movies, whatever. <laughs> but I, um, you know, I always made sure that I was upfront with them because I never wanted to surprise them that I was doing a story on them. Um, and most of the time they knew I'd be in court for Eddie Lato's proceedings he'd see me there and then i'd wait for him to walk out and all that stuff but my point is to just reinforce what you were saying especially with the bosses like Monacchio and salemi they were almost charismatic and i don't i don't like to um um you know just because you're like yeah right what i try to tell people all the time just because you're likable and fun to hang around with doesn't mean you're not a sociopath no they were bad guys Right. Look, they were bad guys, but they were 
first of all, they had memories of a steel trap. Uh, and you, you know, you would talk to them and, uh, they were very, as I said, charismatic and almost, almost friendly. And you had to remind yourself, Oh yeah, yeah they, they've either murdered people or they have murdered people or, and as bosses ordered the hits on, on people, you know? Mm-hmm. So, uh, anyway, it was just that my thought as, as you were talking about that, cause it was the same experience I've had. Well, no, so what was perplexing to me for a short period of time was quickly illuminated. So it, it's uh, um, it was fall of 15, I believe, uh, November, uh, October, November of 2015. And I'm um, having all these conversations with Salemi through his attorney. Uh, shout out to Stephen Bozing, Boozing, Boozing, who was great. Um, but... Uh, I get a call. I remember. I remember it was a Saturday afternoon. I got a call, and Frank's was like, "Yeah, I, I can't do this." And we had been talking about it for a good six, seven weeks. Um, and he was super excited and super engaged. So it was very. It, it, it caught me off guard because it wasn't consistent with his approach or his attitude before that. And he was really short with me. And was just like, listen, I can't do it. I'm sorry. I've had second thoughts. I appreciate everything you've done. Da, 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 da. And I hung up the phone and I was kind of like, wow, where did this come from? This this book deal that I was really excited about just blew up. And I remember calling over the next couple of weeks to Boozang and being like, can you please try to, you know, convince him, you know, uh, what can I do to change his mind? Da, 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 da. And then fast forward like four months or whatever, you know, March of 16. And they're digging up. Stevie DeSaro's body. <laughs> and I'm not saying that he knew that that was on the horizon. I don't know, but he knew something because he was all hot to trot in, in October of, of 15 to do that book. And, you know, by Thanksgiving, he, he's telling me he, he doesn't feel comfortable doing it anymore. And then three months later, they dig up a body that they tie him to. I, I in my mind, I just feel like it has something to do with it. I, I got to wonder this. Like, as we sort of alluded to earlier in our conversation, what happened for the feds uh, to, to discover that body was the marijuana bust on right. that factory. Jeez, you've got to think that was about four months prior right. to them actually digging right. up the body, you know, and that that guy uh, offered up some information. And, and you could say a lot of things about Cadillac Frank Salemi. He's not stupid. Yeah. So I just remember just, uh, I was with my dad somewhere. I remember, this is how my memory works. I remember it was like November, but it was like 60, 65 degrees out on a Saturday and we were out. We might've been at the driving range or something. And I got the phone call and I was so dejected and just did not understand yeah. it at all. And then come the following spring, I understood it. To, you know, I, it became so clear to me why that all uh, went the way it went when, when, they, uh, when, when DeSaro's dug up. And it's just a matter of time before they go uh, and, and pick up DeLuca and Salemi. And um, at least with Salemi, he tried to kind of go on the run, uh, but it didn't really work. They, they caught him pretty quickly. Yeah, he did. He took off for a little bit with some money in a suitcase, but that didn't get better. What did he get to Connecticut? I think. Yeah, and, uh, it was. It wasn't far <laughs> from from Boston. Um, last thing I'll ask you is, Jimmy and I were sure. were talking about this yesterday, and I sensed that the FBI, when they were crafting Salemi's deal in the early two thousands, the FBI 
you know, the government is the, you want to talk about always the smartest guy in the room. Uncle Sam is always going to be the smartest guy in the room. He's always going to have the deepest pockets. You know, he, you know, it's, it's, it's a losing battle to go up against Uncle Sam and they know everything. So the idea that while crafting that deal with Salemi, that they were um, unaware of the fact that he was leaving out a bunch of murders from his debriefing is just that's that this can't be true. In my opinion, the FBI or the U.S. Attorney's Office made that deal with him, knowing full well that he was keeping things out of. Uh, of of his debriefings and his 302s, but they were so desperate to nail John Conley. And I know this is a name that we haven't even talked about in the last hour, but John Conley yeah, was, the, was the, yeah, the former FBI agent that was helping Fleming and Bulger. Um, I believe that they were just so eager to nail Conley that they didn't care that, that Frank Salemi was playing both sides of the fence and just cut the deal with him. And, and as long as they got the testimony against Conley, they didn't care. To the point where I was saying to Jimmy yesterday, I bet there were some FBI agents in 15 and 16 that didn't want that body to be <laughs> dug up. It made them look bad. You know what, though? I, I look at it differently. Uh, so I disagree slightly because put your pretend you're an assistant U.S. attorney out of the Boston office of the U.S. attorney's office. Um, I can't remember who the U.S. attorney was then. Stern, maybe. I don't know. But look, yeah, of course they knew that Salemi was withholding things in his proper session. They absolutely knew it, but they can get their cake and eat it too because they can take down John Connolly and then years down the road when they can prove Cadillac Frank Salemi lied, oh, you broke your agreement in the proper session. Guess what we're going to do? We're going to charge you. And they get to take down Salemi as well. So they, they actually cast a wider net uh, in that proper session than... So let me realize. And That's the same point. thing with DeLuca. They they knew, right? But then years down the road, they can put the screws to DeLuca once again. So uh, it, whether or not I'm giving – I might be giving them too much credit, and maybe they lucked into it, but it either way, it benefited uh, the government on, on both ends. Yeah. To further emphasize my point about motives for withholding information, I believe even though at the end of the day Bobby DeLuca took the stand against – Frank Salemi and put Frank Salemi in prison for the rest of his life. We've, we've alluded a, a number of occasions in this talk about how close DeLuca and Salemi were. I, I yeah. believe part of the reason Salemi didn't give up DeSaro was to protect DeLuca. Because his, Maybe. his kid was dead. I understand his brother, he's got probably more of an allegiance to his brother to DeLuca, but, but I, the fact that it, that, that he did, that he didn't, give up that information on that. I, I, I just, I sense that, that he was protecting not just his brother, but was also protecting his best friend, Bobby DeLuca, or one of his best friends. Bobby. Particularly if you get in the time machine and you go back to when uh, Salemi has to proffer with the FBI and the U S attorney's office, there was still a, a boatload of loyalty uh, to DeLuca and vice versa at the time. And, and we've seen time and time again, the wheels of that loyalty fall off eventually but then in the you know late 90 early 2000s whatever whatever that was um i think you're right i think there was some loyalty there i do think it was more about family like true blood family than it was uh bobby deluca but if that was an element of his consideration i, I bet it existed have you heard anything about jack salemi 
I know he's alive. No. Yeah, I haven't. He hasn't been on my radar screen yeah, at all. For a while. And he was made? Jack Slummy was made. He was the acting boss for a year or two when Cadillac Frank was on the run in between Cadillac Frank and Baby Shacks. Jack had some leadership role for a short period of time. That's interesting. I actually want to ask a, a question as we we're winding down here because Scott and I are really interested in pop culture and movies and TV shows, and music about gangsters oh, and in the underworld. Before the, after that, yeah. we're going to give a shout out to Tim's book that's being made yeah. into a, a a television show. Yeah, of course. So I, I'm not sure if you watched it, but um, obviously The Sopranos, at least I would argue, is the gold standard. Some people would say The Wire, Narcos, but I, I think The Sopranos is the gold standard. But one of my favorite underworld tv shows i think it's underrated i think scott agrees with me i i just i hardly ever find anyone who who even watched it or knew about it is the brotherhood yep, that was on it. showtime loved it took place oh in yeah providence. in providence yeah i'm just gonna yeah. say what what are your thoughts that's your neighborhood that's your backyard did you watch that show what, what were your thoughts about that show yeah i wasn't a loyal viewer like i was the wire i'm a big the wire fan uh and obviously the sopranos i liked and i'll, I'll just give you my look soliloquy on the sopranos in a second um but uh, brotherhood was great but i'm sort of biased because um you know i know where they shot the movies uh, excuse me the the series i know the neighborhoods it was it, you politicians would make from around here that i cover would make cameos in that show then mayor david cicilline was on that show briefly He's now a U.S. congressman and was part of the impeachment prosecution of uh, then-President Donald Trump. You know, so it's just funny uh, that he was uh, on that program. And, you know, I so there's I thought it was I thought it was an underrated show, too. I'm glad you said that. Um, but I will admit, candidly, I wasn't as loyal a viewer for whatever whatever reason. Just my little thing on The Sopranos. I kind of touched on it earlier and I say the same about and you guys are going to, your listeners are probably going to burst into flames here about the <laughs> Godfather. Um, you know, th I have issues with those shows, just as I've reported on organized crime now for more than two decades, that they often glamorize uh, La Cosa Nostra. And, you know, uh, people, people got hurt. And, and, and particularly in Rhode Island and, uh, you know, Boston, I suppose, but more so in Rhode Island because we feel things more here as our size. They really eroded the quality of life in this area. You know, the, the cost of doing business, if you open a pizza shop or whatever, and you're getting shaken down in the 80s you know, for protection payments or whatever, the cost of doing business just went up. There was, um, you know, they had judges. They truly operated as a secondary government in this region. Um, and this lie that the Godfather perpetuated that uh, the, the crime, the it, La Cosa Nostra didn't get involved in narcotics is just BS. I mean, it's just not true. You know, they make money any way they can in cocaine and heroin and whatever it might be. There's a lot of money in that. And they certainly uh, took part in that. A, a big time capo uh, got busted for protecting a, a, a shipment of cocaine that was coming. That through, was Maddie. It was Maddie. Rhode Island. Maddie Googly Maddie. That was Maddie Googly Maddie. Mentioned and it so, earlier. Yeah. Yeah, so I well, I, I just didn't know how many names we had thrown out, yeah. <laughs> but um, you know, so those are and and it's a bit of a soapbox speech, but it's also why you know I continue to report on organized crime, even though I, I guess it's um, a signal of where things stand now, less so than I did five, ten years ago than I do now. Uh, but it's why I continue to report on it because I think it's 
it's important to show the um, the underbelly of what it is and, and the, the often the true victims of uh, their misdeeds. Well, you know? I, I do talks um, quite a bit and, uh, you know, being Jewish and having a, uh, a lineage in my family that dates back to a, a, a really infamous um, Jewish organized crime group, the Purple Gang. Uh, which were led by... Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, led by the Bernstein brothers, the four Bernstein brothers, who were my uh, great-grandpa's first cousins, and uh, had that, you know, in my family history, and uh, at least around Detroit, uh, the in, especially in the Jewish community, the Purple Gang is incredibly romanticized. And whenever I do my talks, uh, you know, in, in these, either a Jewish community center or a synagogue or, a, you know... Just, you know, I'm hired by a library to do a talk on the Purple Gang. And I have all these old ladies that, you know, want or, you know, my dad told me a story about how this one Purple Ganger, you know, helped my mom uh, over a puddle and took her groceries <laughs> into the... Uh, and then there was this book that was written uh, about the Purple Gang called uh, They Were Good to Their Mothers, which is another kind of the <laughs> false narrative that that floods through the Jewish community in Detroit and I always start by saying listen these are my family members and I, I I'm an expert in this uh this this field and I'm fascinated by this stuff and uh, I love storytelling from from uh uh this palette that that I'm painting from but let's make no mistake about it the purple gang were not Robin Hoods of the Jewish community in Detroit. They preyed yeah. on the Jewish community in Detroit. The narrative that I think some of these people have in their heads that the the Jewish Purple Gang was protecting the Jewish community from the big bad Italians and the Tocco-Zerilli crime family is just false. The 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 Purple Gang and the Tocco-Zerilli uh, organization worked hand in hand <laughs> yeah. to, to extort, to drug deal, to bootleg. To, to uh, run gambling operations, and the I said that I say to these people in these talks, I said, "Do you think the the Jewish racketeers? Do you think the people they were killing? You think they were killing Italians? You think they were killing Irish? The Purple Gang has, you know, I've heard numbers uh, reaching into the four figures, but let's just say that there were, you know, five hundred to eight hundred murders that the Purple Gang is." Uh, connected to between 1923 and 1943, 99.999% of them are Jewish people they killed. And the businesses... Right, the businesses they were extorting were Jewish businesses. So, like, I'm I'm 100% in lockstep with you in, you know... You wanted everyone wants to tell great stories, and these these people, these these underworld figures, are colorful. They're they're fascinating. They're compelling, but you you have to give people raw truth and context. And you know sometimes that's going to burst their bubble, like you said about people that that love this. You know they love the mythology, but sometimes the mythology doesn't uh align with reality. Well we used to hear I used to hear stories about that about Whitey Bulger since we're talking about Boston too. Wouldn't they say Tim like, oh well he keeps crime out of his out of the mother's neighborhood oh. or something. Yeah. Such revisionist history. Right. And Tim wait Tim I want I actually want your opinion on this. I tell people when they talk about the um, movie Black Mass, I say as horrible as the Johnny Depp depiction of Whitey Bulger is in that film 
He's worse. They leave a lot off the table. They leave off the fact that he was a predator. Yeah, he was even worse. He was diddling little kids and raping young girls. Yeah, he was even worse than the movie. Yeah, that got taken out of the movie scripts. I'm sure Johnny Depp wouldn't want to play that So I'm just saying, like, so anyone you talk about, especially out of him, any romanticism of Whitey Bulger. Yeah, is 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 quite misguided. It's gross. Yeah, it's gross. Yeah, hundred percent agree. Well, Tim, this was great. Uh, I appreciate uh, you joining us on the Original Gangsters podcast. You are always welcome back. Uh, we are huge fans of yours and yours uh, and the reporting that you do that you do for uh, WPRI and uh, just you know you are the gold standard out in New England and uh, he's got a project, a movie. Person. Yeah, so yeah, tell tell everyone real quick what's the status of uh, uh, the Bonded Vault heist is a is a very famous crime in Providence. Um, you yeah. know, to give a, a, I mean, a ten second synopsis, uh, there was a. a um, a facility that was kind of like a safety deposit box facility for a lot of guys in the underworld in Providence. They kept all their stuff there. Raymond Patriarca allegedly was angry with some of his men over the way he was treated uh, during a prison stay. And he might've, or probably did give the sign off to a group of people to go in there and, and rob the place. And uh, right. it's 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 a it's a great story. Tim uh, co-authored a book on it, and I believe it's it's being developed uh, into a television show. Is that correct? Well, what? Uh, yeah. So, good uh, summary on it. The book is called "The Last Good Heist," um, and it is the true story of that of the Bonded Vault heist, which was a secret mob bank in a first storage building it had two hundred uh, safe deposit boxes that were that were ripped open and, and the, the spoils of ill-gotten gains were taken by uh, the gunmen in that, uh, it, it, you know, in that case, 1970, mid-1970s, 1975. Um, so it was options uh, for whatever, be it a movie or a, or a television series by uh, a guy named Don Winslow, who oh. some of your listeners might know. Um, he's a god. He is a, Don name. Winslow is a he is god. A, yeah, big name. Of, of yes. uh, true or it's not true crime of crime fiction. No, he is the crime he's, fiction. Yeah. he's the John Grisham of of today, and, and he's better. <laughs> and frankly, I just I finally had time to read his book, The Force. Which, oh, um, so I good. think it's one of his under. It's so good. Uh, just he gets so much attention for the cartel and all those other books that he's done. That The Force is to me, uh, it was his best writing. Yeah, I didn't. Re- I actually anyway, haven't read so- the cartel. I've only read The Force. The Force is outstanding. Uh, it is outstanding. Uh, great audiobook too, if anybody likes audiobooks. But um, so he optioned it, and really, I you know, for anyone who's ever been in my shoes before, yeah. when you're the co-author of a book and it gets optioned, you're sort of just out of the mix. Yes. I mean, you you're optioning away your rights, and you don't really know where things stand. He renewed the option uh, last year, I think it was, which is you know that's great. Um, so. We'll see. You know, fingers crossed um, that it. it be, I think it would make a great movie or a series. Um, the characters are so rich in it. I don't. You know, these guys weren't Ocean's Eleven. Let's be clear. <laughs> you know, but they pulled off one of the greatest heists in U.S. history. Uh, so it's a phenomenal story. So uh, keep good thoughts on that one. Scott. I will. Yeah. Congrats. And Tim, thank you so much. Thanks. Uh, it, let everyone know where they can follow you and and and, and consume your reporting. Yeah, real quick, uh, you can always find me on WPRI.com and, and click on the investigative unit at the top banner. We also have under that drop down, it's called Inside the Mafia. So anytime I do an OC story, 
It's going to pop up there. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Tim White RI. Those are the, probably the two best places to uh, keep track. Thanks, Tim. Next time uh, I'm out there, we're, uh, we're grabbing drinks. Oh, I would love that. <laughs> Scott. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm, a, I'm a loyal reader of yours. Uh, you do great work, so let's get together. Well, a lot of my work, I piggyback off your work. So <laughs> I appreciate you. <laughs> All right, man. All right, thanks, Good Tim. Talk to you guys. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. And uh, everyone listening, make sure you subscribe. Please uh, follow us on Twitter, Instagram. Follow us on Facebook. Like us and spread the word. We'll be back next week for Jimmy Bucciolato and Scott Bernstein. We're out. <laughs>